Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey, hey, this is Nick O'Brien, and welcome to this episode of the Musician's Venture Podcast. This episode is a feature on Noah Likas, a musician product of Racine, Wisconsin, but he lives in Colorado now. Noah is a writer, editor, and a musician who's played with a variety of bands throughout his music career. Currently, he's a touring member of a folk rock outfit called The Silent Comedy and a founding member of the rock and roll band called American Restless. As a writer, Noah has written articles for many well-known publications across the country. He's currently the managing editor at Branding Mag and a regular contributor to a variety of other publications. He's also authored a well-acclaimed poetry book, which inspired a sonic poetry collaboration and a subsequent series of award-winning short films that have been played at film festivals nationwide. Noah's rock and roll band, American Restless, has a unique story that includes different iterations, sounds, and cross-country collaborations that are largely the product of his time living and learning music and Racine. The band started with Noah and his brother nearly 15 years ago, but after just a short time, the band went on an unofficial hiatus. That is, until the COVID pandemic prompted a reboot of the band. The American Restless debut album called Rust Belt Rock and Roll is being released this spring, with a release show bringing all of the band members and some of the collaborators back to Wisconsin for a performance at Shank Hall in Milwaukee. Over the course of the conversation, we talk about how he became a musician pretty quickly as a teenager as a result of being around music and musicians at the guitar shop that his dad owned and meeting a friend to make music with, which was Ian Grant, who plays bass in American Restless and has been a huge part of Noah's music career. He also talks about his early days of putting bands together and playing shows and his first serious band coming together when he was 17, which was a metal band called Hate Fight Hate. He also describes his experience with the difficulty of keeping a band together after getting through the first few milestones of writing and recording some songs and the type of resiliency it takes to endure the stresses of trying to make it as a young musician while also handling the normal aspects of life as a young adult. He reflects on starting the first incarnation of American Restless in the late 2000s with his brother, and then stopping after getting burnt out by playing so many shows in such a short period of time. He explains that it took the COVID pandemic stopping everything to be able to have the time and space to reboot the band, which was actually prompted by a poem he wrote, and then quickly evolved into a collaborative effort with his Racine friends, who are now living in different parts of the country, which then turned into the band's debut album. He talks about the album being a culmination of his experiences in Racine and the musicians he's loved to collaborate with throughout the years, including his dad. He explains the song you'll hear at the end of the interview called Cadillac Head, which actually put the band on a national stage when Gerald, who plays in the band and is a professional UFC fighter, walked out to that song for a fight that aired on ESPN. He describes what success means to him as a musician and for American Restless, he shares some advice for other musicians and reminders of why it's so important to be open to learning from those around you and being grateful for those opportunities. This interview is packed with Noah's reflections on how important the Racine music scene has been to his career and to his life. It was a joy to listen to him recall all of the musicians and experiences that have impacted his journey, and he does so with the utmost gratitude. If you like how the stories of some musicians can seem so poetic in the way the story takes shape, well, then you're likely going to love the story of Noah Likas. Thanks, Noah, for jumping on a Zoom with me and sitting down for this interview. Express my gratitude to Zach from the Wisconsin Music Podcast, who put us in touch you uh, you go back with him. You, I think you've recorded with him or something like that, which is how you guys know each other. 
Yeah. I mean, I've honestly, I've probably known Zach at least half my life, to be honest. Like he was a saxophone teacher at my dad's store in Racine, which was Gary's music. So he taught saxophone and I went to the recording workshop in Ohio when I got like an audio degree. And then Zach wanted to get into studio work. So we ended up kind of bonding over that stuff. And then he went to the recording workshop also. And then he opened up his own studio in Kenosha. I, I don't know what year it was, but it was 20 years ago or something. I recorded my first two solo albums with him. And that was like 2003, 2006. And then we recorded like some early American Restless demos with him around 2009. And those never really came out, but we started kind of recording stuff that, you know, now is American Restless. So yeah, there's just a big gap there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And Zach, if you're listening, thank you for putting Noah and I in touch for this conversation because we had never met before just like 15 minutes ago when we popped on the Zoom and took some time to kind of establish a rapport before hitting record. Enjoyed that conversation. I'm very much looking forward to the rest of it. The one that you listeners get to take part in as well. So Noah, let's start from the beginning. You've been playing music a lot of your life. I think you, you said you, you played your first show when you were 13, but you know, I always like to kind of zoom in on, you know, the internal experience of a musician when they're first getting into to the realm of creating music versus just consuming it. And so, you know, obviously with your with your dad owning a guitar shop in Racine or Racine, depending on, on, on how you say that, you know, you were exposed to, you know, music and, and musicians at, a, at an early age. But I'm curious, like, just take me through that experience of like when it became kind of an idea in your mind that, that creating music was something that you were drawn to? And, and what was that draw? Well, I've started playing, I actually started on drums when I was, I mean, I was younger than that. I don't know how old I was, nine or something, 10. And I started on drums and I wanted to be a drummer and I played at school and stuff. School band, like a, whatever it was, third, fourth grade. Drums, you know, the thing with drums, and I, and I still love drumming, but it's really hard to do by yourself. And if you're kind of somebody who's like, spends a good amount of time by yourself like I was it's only so fun to like work on paradiddles and things like when you're you know like you're that age like you don't you know it's like you want to play with people do stuff so I ended up switching to the guitar when I was I think I was 13 so I, I probably played my first show when I was 14 but I think I switched to the guitar at 13 and I got like an Epiphone Strat copy and I was just head over heels in love with playing and that was really I think it's Nirvana and, and Sonic Youth that was the thing. So I found that music and this is, let's see if I was 13, it's like 1994, 95, something like that. So Kurt Cobain's already gone, but that whole thing is like, you know, it's still kind of in the ether. Mm -hmm. And so like songwriting, the idea of being like a virtuoso or like a hired gun guitar player was never, like, I, I just never really got into that. I, I wanted to write and create kind of whatever things that I, I felt expressed myself, I suppose. And that was from pretty early. Kurt Cobain and Sonic Youth and stuff like that, Fugazi and all those like kind of DIY punk bands. I think that's what did it because it was cooler to learn how to do that. I was kind of one of those kids who I didn't really want to be a fan of stuff. I wanted mm. to be part of it. So when I saw Fugazi play in Milwaukee, I didn't want to be a Fugazi fan. I wanted to be in Fugazi. <laughs> yes. so, which is probably like somewhat psychotic i guess if you think about it like but like i didn't want to listen to nirvana i wanted to be in nirvana and so that was from pretty early but i think that's what did it and then my friend ian who's actually in american wrestlers ian grant bassist i think we met in kindergarten actually maybe it was first grade but i have a photo of us like when we're like that young, which I should use as like an album cover or something. Like we met in whatever it was, kindergarten, first grade. And then we went to different schools for a while. And then we met back up in middle school and he was playing bass and I was playing guitar and we just clicked and we spent middle school and high school just in the basement playing music together. So it all kind of went pretty quick. Once I found music, I just, there was nothing else. And then I found a friend, you know what I mean? Like that was the whole thing is I found music and through music, I found a friend and then that was it. Like what else, what else is there, you know? And then hanging out at my dad's store, like just the wildest, most interesting characters you could imagine just coming in every day with crazy stories and 
telling you about bands and music that you would never find being, you know, being 14, like you would never find some of that music, you know, like, how are you going to find Otis Rush when you're 14, you know, right. I should tell right. you about it. And especially then, cause there's not like Spotify, like you're not going on Apple to, to like, listen to the groups of your friends that you know, blues playlist. You know I mean? Like you're just, you're just at Best Buy or somewhere looking at CDs going like, I don't know who any of these people are, you know? So yeah, it was cool. That all kind of hit at once. Like, finding Chicago blues, finding the guitar, meeting all these interesting people at my dad's shop, making a friend to play music with, like all these things happened sort of like in the course of a year. And that was kind of it, you know, I was like, what else is there then? <laughs> yeah. And when you said that you never been really like somebody who wanted to be a fan of a band, you want to be in the band. You didn't want to be a fan of Kurt Cobain. You wanted to be Kurt Cobain. Was that coming from like an internal place of like, I want to be like that guy or you're just, it was it coming from a place of like, there's something about the music or that medium of expression that really kind of resonated with you? Man, I think it's two things. I think one is I wanted to feel heard, right? I think anyone who writes, like whether it's literature or anyone who plays music, I think there's like a fundamental internal, like probably like a trauma issue or something, but like something internal that's like, you don't feel hurt. It's very rarely that the oldest child in a family who everyone thinks is the shining star of the family becomes the musician, right? Like it's such a difficult and sort of impractical thing to try to do that you sort of have to be driven to be heard. So I think when you're 13 and you see Kurt Cobain on stage, everyone's listening, you know, and you're going like, I just want to feel heard. Like I don't feel heard probably, right? And that's me at this age, looking back, going like, that's probably a big part of it. At the time, I still don't know if that's true. It's just a suspicion that I have because I've interviewed enough artists in my life and I've had enough friends that I sort of see this commonality with us all, which is this intense need to feel heard, which kind of manifests in sort of articulating ourselves to an absurd degree. Like if I can just write the perfect first sentence, right? Yeah. How often ha have you done that? Like, if I can just say it perfect, everyone will listen. And then you find out everyone's listening to people who don't even think about how they're articulating themselves. You know, it's kind of a fool's errand at times, but I think that's a huge part of it. Then the second part of it is, I think that it's just cool. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like, like, it's not that deep. There's the deep part, which is like, you know, what sustains you in the arts is feeling like you have something to express that inherently has value and needs to be expressed and should be heard. Whether anyone else in the world ever agrees with you or not, it's not generated from an external source. There's, a, there's some sort of internal thing that's just going like, you need to just say this thing, get it out there. But the other part is like, it's just cool. Like when you're hanging out at a blues jam with a bunch of like older dudes who are just telling you wild stories about a gig in 1976 and Des Moines and what happened, you're just like, you're glued, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and it's just, you're just like, I just want to hang out with these guys, you know, like this is way cooler than like football or whatever. You know what I mean? And I know that we're in Packer country, so I'm not disrespecting football. I just wasn't interested in football. I didn't feel a pull towards that stuff. I just felt the pull towards, you know, this stuff, you know? Yeah. So it seems like the pull was, you know, this way of expressing yourself, of being heard, and then also just kind of the influence of the others that you had met in the music industry of like, well, that's a lifestyle I want to live. You know, I want to have those types of stories to tell. And then what was the process like of actually learning how to make music? You know, like you said, you started on the drums and then you switched the guitar. What was the process like of like learning, you know, those instruments and practicing? And then what at what point did songwriting come into the picture? Or did you start doing covers like right away? Like take me through like the technical aspects of being a musician and, and what that was like in the early days. I mean, definitely started by learning other people's songs, you know, because there's like there was no way to I mean, I, I'm I'm sure I noodled and came up with little things, but Ian and I used to just make these like demo tapes in our basement. Or it was in his basement half the time, but we used to just make these demo tapes on a little boombox. That was just me and him covering like Nirvana songs or whatever Sonic Youth songs, stuff stuff like that. And we would just play it, and like, and then 
we would take turns rotating on the different things. So like I'd play guitar and he'd play bass and then he'd play guitar and I'd play drums. It's like we would just kind of rotate and kind of just learn how songs worked. Like, why was a song good? What made it function? Like, how does it work? And that's one of the hardest things. Like, with songwriting, it's like when you're doing, like, an article, it's the same thing. What makes an article work? It's a really hard thing to learn. And then the insecurity and the difficulty of getting out of your own way and just going like, well, I know this idea is good, but it doesn't work, so I have to do this to make it work. You know, so like that whole process is painful and it's growing pains. But one of the best ways to do it is by learning other people's songs because you go, oh, well, this is how this works. And like, yeah, that chorus for this song is amazing. The bridge is kind of weak, but the bridge works and it gets you back to the chorus. You know, so as a whole, it's good, you know, whereas when you're younger and you're starting to write, it's like, you know, each sentence has to be one good sentence, you know, just write one good sentence. It's like, well, no, sometimes you need a sentence that's going to get you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's not just going to be a clean sentence. And so like you learn all those things, you know? And so I think for me, I always did that through learning other people's songs. And then as soon as I could rip those songs off, I started doing that, you know? So, you know, there was whole, you know, demo tapes filled with fake Nirvana songs and stuff, you know what I mean? Like all that stuff, because that's how you learn. You go, okay, well, if I change this chord, now it's my song, you know? And then you start finding a voice in that and then... You find another voice in that. And then, you know, like the Miles Davis thing, it takes a long time to learn how to play like yourself, you know, so. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So you said you played in the school band as well during this time? A little bit. (laughs) Okay. I played in grade school. I played drums in the school band for like a year. Okay. And, And there was this other kid who was really good at drums and he just knocked me out of the running. So I think I didn't play very much and I just wasn't passionate enough about it to try to keep up. And then after I switched to guitar, I think I did like summer band or something once, but I think Ian and I might've both done summer band one time together or something. I don't know. I would have to ask him, but again, I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't want to be playing other people's music. As soon as I figured out how a song worked, I wanted to write music, have my own band put my own songs into the world and be an artist or just be my own artist. You know what I mean? Not be known for being able to do somebody else's art well, but just be able to do my own, you know, which is very childish and very short-sighted. But that's how I felt at the time. It felt like you could be a, a cover band or you could be an original band. And it felt very, very rigid to me. You can cover one song, but if you cover three, you know, it's like, now you're yeah. off the list, you know? And that was just a 14-year-old's perspective, which is not true at all. And especially now, I mean, you got People do tribute records and stuff all the time and nobody cares. But then I felt it was very much like I don't want to play other people's songs. I stopped wanting to even learn how to play other people's songs. I wanted to just do my own stuff. And I spent a few years very much head down doing that. Do you remember the first song that you wrote and put together that you were like I do, really, yeah. really proud of? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Ian and I joke because we send parts back and forth, you know, like for songs. And like every once in a while, I'll re-record that first song and I'll just send it to him as, as an idea for a song. I uh, just like, <laughs> it's really funny. Um, so it's like an inside joke. But uh, yeah, I, I do remember it. It's objectively terrible. Oh, really? Yeah. But you were proud of it at the time? Oh, yeah. I was so proud of it. I mean, it's not objectively terrible. It just it's terrible in the sense of like it offers nothing to the listener. Like it's just a couple riffs that sound like Nirvana and mumbly vocal line and just, you know, it's a 13-year-old song. You know what I mean? It's like... What was the song yeah. about? Oh, I have no idea. I, I don't even remember the, the the title or the lyrics or anything. I, I just remember the Yoka chord change. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. But eventually you started putting together objectively better songs. When was the first real band that you were in and you were out gigging? What point in the journey did that come in? I don't know. I mean, the first band played a couple shows. You know, I mean, back then too, it's like you would play in these bands and they would last six months. You know what I mean? So you would like get together with a configuration of guys that you were sort of all kind of circulated the same friend group. You would practice a bunch of times, get together like six or seven songs then you'd go play a show or two and then you'd end up breaking up or getting kicked out of the band or kicking somebody out or whatever. It's it's all just real. You know I mean? So I don't know, like real band where it was like, this is my band and I have my guys and like, we're going to try to do something. That wasn't until I was about 17. Okay. And that was Ian and I 
had a band with two good friends of ours, Jeff and Adam, and, and we had a band called Hate Fight Hate, and it was like a hardcore metal band. And that was the first band. And that band you can actually listen to on mkepunk.com. So it, oh, really? It's up there, yeah. You can throw that up on the pod. That'll be funny because it is some metal. It's good. It still holds up, I think. It's good. But yeah, yeah, that was like, we got really into like hardcore and we got into like metal. And that was, you know, 98, 99. That was what everyone was doing. Yeah. And that was the first band where it was like, we spent a year in the basement writing songs and woodshedding and like learning how to be a band. And then we recorded and we played shows. Yeah. That was the first one that was really, I think, pretty serious. There was one band before that that Ian and I had where we actually were supposed to do a seven inch on a record label, but it all fell through. So that one was almost serious, <laughs> but I think Hate Fight Hate was the first one that was like, okay, this is like, we're doing something. And how long did that last? Well, they were a band for a while. I quit after a couple of years. So 17, 18, maybe, maybe I did that for two years, maybe three, I would say two probably. And then I was starting to get really into like songwriting and really into like writing, writing. Right. So I was like, you know, cause I also write. So I was really into poetry as a kid and really into Dylan Thomas and the beat poets and, and like all this kind of stuff. I really, really loved all this stuff. And so as much as I loved hardcore music and I loved metal, I kind of started feeling like, well, I'm spending all this time writing these lyrics. At the time, I thought they were very like profound, you know, high quality lyrics. Right. And I'm like, no one understands the damn word I'm saying. I'm just screaming. Yeah. As fun as it is to scream. I'm just like, I don't really feel like this is what I'm best at. And so I started to feel that way. And then, yeah, I just started losing interest in playing that kind of music. I think it was probably 2001 that I stopped. So it was probably three years. I'll bet I did that for three years, but we did like a couple of recordings and then they went on and they kept playing and they did like an album and they did a lot of shows and stuff and they were good you know they were still good they were always good because that band was good like those guys could play you know i was just the front guy you know the band was still the band you know yeah you're just playing rhythm and, and singing or screaming i guess in that case yeah yeah yeah, screaming all screaming yeah <laughs> yeah so then when you left that and you kind of like lost interest in that style of music then where did you go like what genre did you land on after that oh i completely ducked out of modern music for a while so my dad ran a blues jam at georgia's for years and years and years in racine and i would go every sunday and i'd play blues with all the guys that were there and i was doing that you know so i mean i was playing in a hardcore band but every sunday night i was playing sweet home chicago with like dudes down at georgia's and i love blues music and i loved it i mean i was just that's all that i would really listen to and i was so into it and then i got really into like bob dylan and americana music and like all this different stuff like just digging back into things that i hadn't dug back in and really learned where all the music came from and how it evolved and stuff so i got really into like the musicology of it all and so after that i kind of checked out from anything modern going on so like if your favorite Radiohead album came out between 2001 and 2007. I haven't listened to it until the last couple of years. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I was just not paying attention at that point. So that's when I got really into like folk music and uh, Americana and blues. And I really focused on learning that catalog and learning how to finger pick, learning how to play slide, learning how to play harmonica, learning how capos work, (laughs) finger picks. You know what I mean? It's like, all this kind of stuff that has no, doesn't have a place in hardcore or punk music. Although now too, there's all these folk punk, you know I mean? That's a whole different, I mean, yeah. it, it does have a place now because I guess there was enough people like me that decided to go back and learn. But yeah, I just got really into that stuff. So I spent the next few years really, really working hard at guitar and writing and trying to learn how to sing, which is still probably hasn't happened, but you know what I mean? Like all of these kind of things. So were you just like playing like solo gigs at this point or just kind of hired gun sitting in on these, these blues jam sessions? Like what was your performing lifestyle like during this? this oh period? yeah. Uh, both really. Cause I started getting gigs where I was just playing guitar for people and, you know, I would play with my dad quite a bit. I played with a few other local folks and then I would put together bands and stuff too. So, you know, we'd go play at the Ivanhoe or go play at Shillings or go play at Great Lakes Dragway or, you know, I mean, like we would just go play all the local sort of gigs that were kind of reserved for cover bands. But I would always try to do some kind of mixture, you know, play blues, play some of my own songs, try to like mix it up. 
make things happen and do that. And then I was also playing solo quite a bit. I would have to think about the years for sure, but I feel like that's by like 2003. I think I'm playing full on like acoustic guitar, harmonica, solo, Woody Guthrie style. And then I'm still playing guitar for people. So I have like an electric life and an acoustic life. Yeah. And then somewhere in there, I moved to Montana. Okay. But I don't know what year. I don't know. And that was for music purposes or just personal life? No, it's just personal. It was just to get out and try to have some experiences. You know, I just felt like the need to go be restless, you know? So went out there and actually got a job writing for the local paper and I wrote music reviews and I went to college out there. And then I, I came back and I recorded my first solo record with Zach. And then, so then I'm into all that stuff. I'm playing solo. And then, man, I don't know. There's so many bands and stuff that I was popping in and out of that it's hard to remember. But somewhere after that, I started playing with a band called The Danger out of Kenosha. Okay. Who was very good, really fun, kind of like indie punk. And I played bass for them. And then I was back to playing solo. And then, yeah, I don't know. Somewhere after that, I started the first American Restless incarnation. <laughs> okay. So it gets kind of foggy there in those years because there were so many different things. Like I, I did record two solo records. And then I also had Noah Likas and The Revival for a bit, which was me as like a string band trio, playing kind of like high octane folk stuff. And we were playing shows. That band toured and stuff. So we did that quite a bit. And we would play shows. There's this band in Milwaukee back then called the 357 String Band. And they were really, really good. Much better than us. But we used to play with them sometimes. And kind of some of that like alt, folk, bluegrass, punk kind of stuff, you know? Cool. Yeah. And then I don't know what was after that exactly. At some point you moved to New York for music purposes. Yes, yes, yes. So, okay, that's what happened next. So 2006... 2007, around then, 2006, I did a solo record, I think. And then 2007, I ended up starting a band in Racine with a bunch of dudes called the Radio Roots. And that band moved to New York in okay. 2007, I think, maybe. Yeah, 2007. And so we did like an EP and it was good. It was just a good, fun band. And then that band ended up breaking up before it did much else beyond moving out there. <laughs> And That's then, unfortunate. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, stuff like that, when you're that age, it's a lot harder to endure those sort of major life changes. And if there's any cracks in the foundation, they, they get exposed and then, you know, whatever. But um, everybody's still friendly. It's not like it was like that. It was just, it just didn't seem like everyone was going the same way with music, which they weren't. I mean, because we're all do very different things at this point. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's with all the bands. Like, you know, I play with a lot of people over the years and like, it's just friendships and band friendships and work relationships and all these things. They're just, you know, it's so much like timing is just everything. And you can't really take timing personal, you know, it's not, you know, I mean, I guess you can if you want to, but I'm just saying like, it's, it's not great to take it personally when timing is just not good for stuff, you know, and that's so much of it, you know, but figuring out how to get a group of guys together or girls and play a couple songs and get them demoed and like it, that's almost like the easy part. And then after that, everything becomes exponentially more difficult. It's like, well, where do we go? What do we do? It's going to cost us how much to go play this show? You know? And then all the checkpoints that you have of like, oh, when this happens, I'll, I'll actually make some money. When this happens, you reach those checkpoints, you realize there's no money at it. It's just the next checkpoint costs more to get to. It's just a constant stress and grind. And so it's really hard to endure that, especially when you're younger. Unfortunately, when you're young and you're your freest and you're your you're, you're most unencumbered, if you're somebody like me, it's when you have the lowest capacity to endure just the stress of trying to do things. You know, it's like those saying, like, you know, exuberance is wasted on the youth or whatever, you know, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's like, man, if I knew what I knew now, you know, <laughs> of course, right? You know, you're just resilient in a different way. Like you're resilient yeah. in the way of like, of like, oh, I can go do it myself. It's, it's like a naive uh, resilience. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you realize, like, there's certain hikes, right? If you think about it like a hike, there's certain hikes, like, you would love to go to. Yeah, this is such a Colorado example. Sorry. That's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> if you're hiking in the Rockies, yeah. Uh, no, but 
Like there's certain hikes where just getting up the hike is like, you would be satisfied if you did it by yourself. And there's other hikes where like, it's more fun to do it with somebody, even if it takes longer, you know? And that is a paradigm that I don't think a 25 year old has, at least a 25 year old me, I'm not going to say this is true of somebody else, but me at 25 just was not something that I understood. Like I just didn't have the capacity to understand the difference between those things. So as you're moving through all this stuff, you're just like, okay, well, what's next? You know, it's like, don't mourn, organize, you know, it's like that same idea. So bands fall apart. This is just what happens. I'm, I got to keep going. And then it takes a while to realize that like, oh, there's actually like key people that, you know, really working with them. Like it took Ian and I years to get back to complaining with each other. And, mm-hmm. and we stayed friends the whole time. We would talk about doing stuff. We would talk about it. But it took years. And it's easily the most valuable music relationship that I've ever had. And no disrespect to anybody else, because I have a lot of people that have taught me. I have so much love for. But, like, I've known Ian since first grade. You know what I mean? Like, I met him before my brother was born. You know what I mean? Like, that's a crazy thing. So how blessed am I to have that sort of musical friendship and to get back to it and and get to do it again. It like means everything to me. So you're winding through all this stuff and in there, you know, I get married and I move and all these things happen. And then eventually the door opens to kind of do this again. But the first American Restless incarnation was with my brother, Josh. So I was living in Nashville for a short stint and I was unemployed for like five months or something like it, like the stock market had just crashed and it was mm. just kind of a nightmare to like find work or do anything. So I ended up living in, in this house in East Nashville with my wife and I just wrote songs for like five months and I wrote like a hundred songs or something wow. like, and most of them have never still even been heard or I haven't done anything with. So I started writing all these songs and then one day I was sitting there and I had this idea. I started writing like and this is like me being a writer, of course, but I started writing like band bios and stuff, thinking like, oh, if I could just write out the story of the band that I would want to have, maybe to help me figure out what yeah. I want to be doing or something. So I start like writing this stuff out and I end up writing this line at the end of it that's like, you know, it's this meets this, it's this and this, it's American Restless. And that's where the name came from. I just wrote it in this kind of poetic Stream of consciousness, right? So we end up settling on the name, and I moved back to Wisconsin, back to Racine. I started working at my dad's store again, and I started American Russells with my brother Josh, Cadillac Josh, as he's known. And he's playing drums, and I'm playing guitar, and we're just doing it as a two-piece. And, you know, we play, we, and we go on tour, and having some pretty good luck, like things are going pretty well. And then we just reach a point where we did, I don't know what, I don't know what we did, like 30 gigs in three months or something, like, or two months. We were sort of pushing it a little bit. And we're playing like four-hour gigs and stuff, too. So we're not just playing like 30-minute gigs. Like, we're doing stuff where we're playing at Outdoor Festival. We're playing four hours, like, at the lakefront. Then we get in the car and we drive to Kenosha and we play at TG's for 45 minutes at, like, a ticketed show. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just burnt ourselves out on it. And then I moved back to... New York and my brother stayed in Racine and that was kind of, we just stopped, you know, just, okay, that's that for now. And then I've been kicking it around for 12 years or something after that. Like, I really want to get back to this, really want to get back to this. But, you know, you get the next gig and the next move and you're playing with this guy, you're doing this thing and you're sort of just following where the guitar takes you. So it took COVID really. That's how we were able to get back to it is COVID stopped. I mean, everything, right? But for me, it's not, it really stopped everything. Like when COVID started, I was unemployed and done playing music. Like I had no gigs. I had, you know, I mean, I had nothing to do. So that sort of got the ball rolling to get this thing back going and to kind of do it the right way. Because it's hard to pick something back up like that after that many years. Like it's hard to do it the right way in terms of like honoring your vision for it and letting it also become something different. It was 2009. You know what I mean? I can't just be 28 again or whatever age I was. I'm glad you brought up COVID because, you know, it's something I usually like to dive into with musicians to just kind of learn how they use their time. Gigging came to a complete stop and some people started to gig, you know, kind of like online and Instagram live and things like that. But that's the time that you use to kind of like really 
set the foundation for a reboot of American Restless? And like, what did that entail for you? Was it just a lot more writing? Was it recruiting bandmates? Like, what was that time like for you as it relates to American Restless? When COVID started, I focused on writing a lot. So I was writing articles like I was writing for like a fretboard journal and an aquarium drunkard and please kill me and a few publications. So I was like doing a lot of interviewing <laughs> and just like writing articles. And then I sat down one day and I wrote this spoken word type poem called Listening to Bob Dylan and Waiting for the World to End. And I sent it to Ian and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about like recording this as like a talking blues poem thing. Do you want to like record a bass line? And he's like, sure. So he recorded a bass part. And then I put the voice and the guitar over the bass line because I, I thought it'd be cool to have kind of like a, you know, jazzy walking bass thing. And he plays a fretless and stuff. So it was easy for him to kind of get that sound too. And then I sent it to my buddy Shelby, who's a drummer who's actually playing drums with us on the Yoka shows in the Midwest. He put together this video and, and then that came out. I forget who premiered it, but it was some literary publication that I can't think of right now. I think it was Southwest Review. I don't know, whatever. The point is, it came out, and that was sort of like the first we collabed on something from different states, different cities, and like we made something. That was really, because like, okay, well, we can write and work on songs remotely. I know people have been doing this for 20 years, but for me, it just wasn't, it was never interesting to me to try to work that way. Like I wasn't interested in like sending somebody guitar demos and having them send, I was like, I just wasn't, I just didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to sit in a room and play music. Cause for me, music's always been social. It is my sports club. You know what I mean? It is my softball team. You know what I mean? Like that's my social life is music. Like it's always been how I've made friends. I love the camaraderie of it because my job is writing. So very solitary. So for me, if music becomes solitary, it feels more like work. Whereas if I can keep it feeling social, it really stays more fun for me, you know? So I always thought working that way would feel really, really isolating. So I was like, I don't know. I don't really want to do that. But it worked and it was great and it was fun. And we have these like two hour phone conversations about it and stuff. And it was great. You know, it was like, it was very social. So that kind of got the ball rolling. And then as the pandemic kept going and going and going, we were just talking more and more. And then we were just kicking around like, hey, we should do something. We should try to like put some music out. And then, you know, that just quickly escalates to like, is there a label that'll put it out? Oh, I, I can know this booking agent. I know It's like, it just turns into like, next thing that you know, you have an album coming out and you're booking shows all across the country and, you know, you're just up and running, you know, so it, it really escalated quickly. But yeah, it was really about me and Ian trying to do it together. Because the first time we did American Restless, he couldn't be involved and he probably should have been, you know. Yeah, well, you know, good things come back around, you know, and that's yeah. probably the case here. So from that point, you know, you, you're working on music, you're putting an album together. You've had an album out before the one that you're releasing in Milwaukee in May, right? Not as American Restless. It's the debut album, yeah. American sure. Restless in 2009 released a couple singles. And those got some like college radio play and like one appeared in a short film and like a few things happened. I think 91.7 played one of the songs a bit and stuff like that. You know, like it didn't really come out in a real way. Like it wasn't out on a label. There was no, you know, I mean, there wasn't anything like that. And then in the early 2010s, I did a collaboration EP, which was with a blues singer and American Rustless. So there's been a few things that American Rustless name has been on. But this will be the first time it's like an American Restless album. It's 10 songs, and the album's called Rust Belt Rock and Roll. It's kind of a greatest hits almost, like, because we went back and we took our favorite songs from before. Then we also wrote new songs. And the, the whole record is all Racine people, which to me was really important for this because it was so anchored in that experience, really. I mean... I'm trying to think of the right word because it's not necessarily anchored in like the region in, in terms of like, I mean, I've, I've lived a bunch of places and stuff seeps in from everywhere, right? You know, but I just wanted to make a really racing album. Like I, I wanted to make it like what I think of when I think of my best times coming up in that scene and just playing music. And I just wanted to like capture because there's just a sound 
in my head that like no other place has. There's like a grittiness and there's something bluesy and something punk and there's all these things. It's like a, there's a flavor there and there's no famous guitar player musician who has influenced me more than the, than the like, people that I played with there. You know, there were some incredible musicians from Racine, you know, just incredible, you know, and we got to be friends with a lot of them and got to play shows and go see shows. Even ones who maybe didn't like me or something, I, I still loved how good they were at music or what they were doing, you know? And so, yeah, it was really important to me. So we had on drums Arjuna Contreras, who's from Racine also, but he played drums for like the Reverend Hort Heat. And he's out playing gigs now with J.D. McPherson and a bunch of people like that. And he also used to teach at my dad's store. And then Gerald Merchart, the UFC fighter, is also from Racine. And he's a saxophonist. Most people don't know that. Him and my brother Josh, he's another Walden guy, but him and my brother Josh have been friends since sixth grade or something. Yeah, so he was a like a jazz saxophonist before he got into fighting. So one of the other things that really kick-started American Restless again was that Gerald had a fight and he walked out to our song, The Cadillac Head, on ESPN. You know? Oh, wow. So I was just like, oh, it was just such a cool thing. So it was like, man, we should, it's just kind of all these things were happening, like, COVID and wanting to get back and work because I had been in California for like seven or eight years and I had played music with a lot of people there and had a lot of amazing experiences and learned so much, but I had always wanted to reconnect with these core people. It was always like in the back of my head, when this timing is right, we're going to do this thing again, you know, when it's right, when it's right. And then it was finally right, you know? And so Gerald plays saxophone on this record. Arjuna plays drums on the whole record. It's me and Ian co-wrote and really did everything. My dad, Gary Lucas, plays organ on like half of the record. Oh, Uh, cool. Then it was recorded in East Nashville. Like, it's all very poetic. It was recorded in East Nashville, like less than a mile from the house that I lived in when I wrote all all the songs back in 2009. Wow. And I came up with the band name. And then my friend, Jeremiah... He is in the silent comedy, who I also play guitar with. And he recorded and he produced the record from Nashville. And his brother, Josh, who's also in the silent comedy, which him and Josh and then our friend Nathaniel did backing vocals. So we got some of that silent comedy. So really, it's like it's bringing all the pieces back in. It's kind of like my restless American Russell's musical journey, right? Oh, it's like there's a piece of all of it on the record. And Racine is the biggest piece because that's the biggest piece of my musical journey because it literally shaped. So it's a kind of a cool thing. And so that's why I'm really excited to get back and play because it's, it's been a really long time, you know. But, you know, I mean, I was having kids. There was a pandemic and it was not easy to get back. But I'm just really excited to get back because there's so many important people to me there. You know, sounds cheesy if I say it all, but... Oh, no, not at all. It's just, I mean, there's, like, you know, there's these guys, like, you know, Hog Hayes used to let me play behind him at the Blues Jams, and rest in peace, Hog, but, he like, he taught me so much. You know, he would just turn around and be like, no, do this, don't do that. Here's how you play this, you know? He would explain to me why the ride symbol was wrong on a blues song. He, he'd be like, oh, the guy's playing eighth notes. It should be 16th notes on the ride. He would just, just throw out stuff like that. You're just going, you're just learning so much, you know? And uh, Craig Audie and Mean Jake and the Rhythm Dogs guys and, you know, just all of these bands, like just all these guys who just love music and they just were so free. And then that's not even to mention all the punk bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, and I, I can't even, uh, that'll take us uh, another hour to start going down that list, but just go on mkepunk.com and just search from like 96 to 2001 Racine and every band that comes up has probably positively affected me or influenced me in some way, you know, or like taught me something, you know. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So this American Restless album, you know, is there one song that kind of stands out to you that most kind of incorporates the influence of Racine or Racine, excuse me, uh, <laughs> on your music that, that you'd want to pick out for listeners to hear after this interview? And what is that song? And like, what's the story behind it? And well, what's the I, inspiration? I feel like the lead song that we redid, and I'm really happy with how we redid it is Cadillac Head, which is the one that Mm -hmm. walked out too but we redid that 
It's kind of a new version of it. And that's a song that there's been like, I've done versions of it with several different groups and it's morphed over the years. And then it was kind of dormant for a while. And then we sort of picked it back up and dusted it off. And that's an interesting song because it's, you know, I don't know really what it's about, honestly. Like, it's not really about Racine. It's not about anything, really. It's just about the idea of needing to go and have all these different experiences because it kind of uses like the blues trope of like, I've got this, I've got that, I've got this, I got that, but you know, I'm still lacking, you know, in some way. So I'm going to go try to have all these experiences, do these things to try to fill that. And it's sort of kind of about how, when you go do things, you know, it's like, even like this record, right? Like I'm describing it in a very poetic, strategic way. Like, ah, oh, I pulled in this guy. It's like, but that's not like, what did I have to do with the fact that Arjuna taught at my dad's store and then ended up in the Reverend Horn Heat? Like, that has nothing to do with me. That's his story. You know what I mean? Like, same for Ian. Like, his story is his story, you know? And the same for Gerald. Like, I don't have anything to do with that. Like, when everyone else was out hanging out, Gerald was at the gym training. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, that's his story, you know? And so the hook of the song is like but i ain't that lucky and that was always supposed to be about this idea of like it's not really luck none of this stuff is really luck it's just sort of like everybody's own story which is filled with pitfalls and bad things too but there's this version of it where it looks very very lucky you know what i mean and it is lucky but it's not my luck sure you know, so I think that's an interesting song. And it's the one that we're leading with for single. But, you know, the thing is, it is it's not, to me, the sound is like the sound that I was always trying to get when I was younger. And I think we finally got it. And so to me, American Restless, sonically, aesthetically, is more racing. It's the thing that I was always hearing for myself. For me, like when I hear the record, I hear the bands that were good from Racine in it. You know what I mean? Like I, I can hear some of that stuff. Like I can hear it coming through, you know, and I won't name names cause I'll leave out somebody, but you know, the point is like the lyrical content is much more just all about restlessness. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, it's more of like an on the road record that way, as far as like the lyrics go. But the sound is more what I attribute to the racing. Cause it's got a little bit of like the heavier kind of big muff guitar tone, which to me is just what I think of you know, it's got some of the bluesier kind of shuffles in it. It's got a couple mosh parts, you know what I mean? Like, so it's kind of throwing it all back to me. And, and I don't know if other people will hear it that way. I don't know if other people will, will hear it as having anything to do with racing. But it might just be like, yeah, I don't know. For me, that's when I, I hear playing in hardcore bands, going to shows at the, the like YMCA. I hear George's, you know what I mean? Like I hear all of it in the record. So that's what excites me because it feels like we finally like, holding pieces yeah. of all of it you know yeah that's really cool I, I love to hear your kind of like reflection of it and honestly it doesn't really matter what other people hear you know it's you made a, a record that's true to you and true to your experience and people are gonna receive it you know however it hits them and i think that's the beauty of music right it's so relative and it can be moving in many different capacities with many different interpretations. But I think the most important thing is that it's moving for you, the people who are creating the music. So yeah, I mean, you'll be coming back to Wisconsin in May. There's an album release show on, on May 12th at Shank Hall. And you're not the only band on that bill, nor are you the only band that's uh, releasing an album that night, right? Ali Eyes is also on that bill. And I think it's an album release show for them as well, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, so our album is actually only going to be coming out digitally for now. Okay. So ours will be, we're targeting Friday, May 5th for our album. So it'll be out like a week before. And sure. then, but I think Ali Eyes, my understanding is that they're going to kind of do their release that night. And then the Silent Comedy, who I'm also playing guitar for that night, they have their album Enemies Multiply is being released in April. And so they'll have that one available on vinyl and stuff. And I play on a couple songs on that record as well. So it's pretty cool to be able to pull double duty and play with my own group and then play with the silent comedy. I've been kind of gigging with for, I don't know, seven or eight years, I guess. Nine years, actually. Should be a great night. So listeners, if you're liking what you're hearing from Noah and want to hear more of the album, and see it live, come out on May 12th, the Shank Hall. 
Noah, I want to zoom out a little bit of the music and just kind of zoom in on, like you've been a musician for a long time now and several different kind of capacities and bands and things like that. I guess, what, what does it all mean to you? And like, what does success mean to you as a musician? I'm curious. As a musician, it means still doing it, honestly. As anyone listening to this who plays music knows, the obstacles to even get anything together and get out and play, it's exponential year after year, it seems like, you know. And so to me, success is like, we're still doing it. Like, I'm still playing. It's kind of that lifer mentality for me. I wasn't always in the coolest band, and I wasn't always, you know, the most talented guitar player on the block and all those things. And some people, you know, some people that's success is being the best or whatever. And that's a great goal. But for me, it's like, we're still doing it and I'm still doing it with people that I absolutely love and I really, really care about. And like, I mean, I get to play gigs with my dad, like how seriously he want to take life outside of that is totally up to you. But like, for me, you know, making a living off of music became not really feasible for me a while ago. So that carrot, you know, I pretty much planted. I, I don't really, I don't really worry about it that way. So me, it's getting to still do it. Like I want to be able to do a fly-in date. I want to be able to go play a cool festival. I want to be able to go do a run of shows in the Midwest and see all my old friends and hopefully get a lot of people out who I haven't been able to keep in touch with and reconnect. You know what I mean? Like those are the things like I just want to be able to keep doing it. And so there's a financial component to it. Of course, like, you know, if you have unlimited money, you can just book shows and buy the tickets yourself and not worry about it. But we have to clear a certain amount of money to keep going, you know? So that's part of it. But the goal isn't really to like make money. The goal is to be able to keep doing it and keep doing it with the people that I really care about and uh, make up for any lost time that I lost doing it with them. You know what I mean? Like I want to play with my brother. He's going to come out to the show and he's going to sit in, you know, play with my dad and Gerald's going to sit in at the show. And these are people I've known my whole life. You know, I met Arjuna when I was a teenager, you know? So it's like to get to do stuff like this, with these people, you know, it really means a lot to me. And so that's what it's about for me. And then just make a cool record. You know what I mean? Like I love music. I love art. Try to make some good art. Hopefully somebody else thinks it's cool. You know, if they do like, awesome. That's my sincerest hope is that somebody finds half as much value in it as I find making it. Yeah. That's a great perspective to have. And you're putting a lot of your time and energy in the music realm of your life into American Restless. Like, I guess, what does an ideal future look like? Just continuing to get to do it? Or do you have specific goals for American Restless? I just want to be able to play when when we want to play, you know? Like, for me, like, I'm not trying to play 300 dates a year, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not really in my goal structure. But we write a lot of songs, and I have a ton of songs that have never either been heard or been recorded well (laughs) like that you know like i just want to get it all out into the world and uh be able to go play and you know have some people enjoy it and i mean there's there's something about when you get to be on the stage and play and people are dancing and having fun and it's just a shared experience and there's nothing really like it and so it keeps us all coming back for more you know and it's like i just want to be able to always do that you know my dad's 70 and he's going to be playing shank hall with us i want to be doing that that's so cool like like i just want to keep playing and um keep writing and keep doing and i just want to be a useful part of, of like the music scene you know i want to be able to play with people i want to you know build new friendships and go play shows with good people and just be around good people who love music and you know see the tide raise for everybody it's very hard you know music it's very hard as everyone listening to this knows like it's not an easy there's no like exact formula it changes all the time what worked for one guy isn't going to work for you but the one thing that always works is like helping put people on and like i think that's what i've benefited from like to me that's what racine like that's the thing i can say about the racine that i grew up in playing was like 
a lot of people some time into helping me learn. And it took me moving away and meeting more people to realize how unique that was because it was just all I knew. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I didn't know it was different. You know what I mean? But in hindsight, my gratitude has just grown exponentially over the last like five to 10 years because I've really realized like, wow, like a guy like Hog taking 15 minutes to explain a guitar thing to me is amazing. What an amazing yeah. experience, you know? I mean, he was just such a talent, you know? And that goes to like the punk scene too, you know, like friends of mine, like Marty Defati in Milwaukee, like he does Gorilla Ghost and Gorilla Digital. And like, I spent so much time with him and he taught me about so much music and he just turned me on to so much stuff. You know, he was like a musicologist. He's like a record collector and stuff, you know what I mean? And, and he played bass in bands and like, he just turned me on to so much stuff, you know, people like this were just really major and shaping. And so it takes a while to like, you get out away from everything and then you sort of realize like, oh, that was actually special, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that success to me is just continuing that. It's just like, I want to be useful in a similar way and get to keep playing and build those moments with people and those memories and like, you know, do it with the guitar is amazing. Like what a feeling. <laughs> yeah, man. I really love your lens of gratitude that you put everything through. Like that speaks to me because I'm the same way. Like you do a lot of stuff and then you're going, 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 just head down. And then you look back on something and you're like, holy cow. Like while that may not have worked out, like I you know, I wanted to at the time, looking back, that experience was so incredibly valuable, both the ups and the downs. And sometimes the downs are even more valuable than the ups because it humbles you and teaches yeah. you some of that resiliency that maybe you didn't have, you know, when you're in your early twenties or whatever. So given, you know, that just that reflection on what success means to you and, you know, just all the valuable insight and time and learning that you've gotten from so many others, do you have like one or two key pieces of advice for other musicians who are kind of like, they're at the beginning stages now, kind of in the same place that you were in when, you know, when you were in Racine? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've done right and wrong at different times in my life, but the biggest <laughs> thing is being open to learning from the people around you. There's times in my life where I've been really open and I was a sponge and I learned. And then there was times where I really just thought I knew better. And the times when I've thought I've known better about music have usually resulted in a pretty hard landing. <laughs> yeah. So I think like for me, it, you know, it's like, look, making money playing a show even, right? Like it's so hard to turn a profit on a show, like a, a substantial one. Like I'm not right. saying like, oh, well, we, you know, three bands with 10 guys total get to split $150. Yeah. Okay. That's not, you know, but I'm saying like to actually like, turn a big enough profit that making the money is the reason to play the show is so tough that like at least go play the show with good people that you can learn from and be around and like get some other stuff from the biggest advice I would have is to chase the learning growing opportunities. You know what I mean? When I've done that, it's changed my world in ways that took me 10 years to understand, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's times I haven't done that. I'm not like some perfect student or whatever. But, you know, it's like the Kung Fu thing when the a student's ready, then the master appears, right? It's like there's yeah. something about just being open, like being in a season of life where you want to learn and grow. And like, I fight with myself to try to stay in that place. And I'm always grateful when I can. There's times when I can't, you know, and just the nature of my life. Like you're saying, you spend 10 years with your head down, just trying to survive and get the next job and do the next thing. If I'm getting laid off in a recession. I'm not thinking about how valuable it was that I learned a chord shape at George's in 1997. You know, yeah. it's like you need a level of peace in your life to even have the space to reflect on that stuff, you know? So it's not like you can always be there. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, you know, if you get a chance to be around or play with people who toured nationally, do it. If you get a chance to be around people who toured internationally, do it. A person like Zach, who spent probably more hours listening to music between being an engineer and playing and all this stuff than a lot of people have, like he's got good perspective to give you. I guess what I'm saying is it's not always the guy with the most Instagram followers that you should keep your attention on. Sometimes there's dudes right next to you who can teach you a lifetime's worth of stuff and they'd be happy to do it if you just asked them. That's sort of like the big takeaway for me is like, 
was fortunate enough that my dad made me go do some of this stuff and that I learned to appreciate it and really learn. I was taught how to learn and that was really good. And then I got to learn a lot. But yeah, that's the that's the big advice I guess I would say is like, don't let the Instagram followers confuse you. That's not the sign always of someone who has a lot to teach you. Sometimes it is. Some of those people, when you meet people who are like famous and crazy successful, you find out a lot of them are very smart. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and, and even if they're putting on an air, like they're just like, oh, I don't know, I tripped over backwards. Some of these people are business geniuses, a lot of them. Some of them aren't though, you know, but a lot of them are very smart. So it's not like... Just because someone's popular doesn't mean that you should not want to talk to them. I'm just saying there's probably somebody in your life right next to you who has a piece of information that could radically change what you're working on. Yeah. And just like take a moment and ask, you know. And some people will just say no. I mean, I see, I've, like, do you know how many times I've written emails or I've gone up to somebody and I've asked them a question? They just put like, nope. <laughs> yeah. It happens all the time. Like, yeah. it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, even playing. Milwaukee, like, I've tried to book shows that venues have said, nope. It's like it happens. It happens to everybody. So don't be afraid to, to keep asking. I guess that's my advice. Keep asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great perspective. And I honestly, authentically uh, agree with you. I have had the same experience in, in my career. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. And appreciate you sharing that perspective and that advice. You know, I, I said before we started recording, I always end the interviews with the same question. It kind of could be a one that maybe you haven't thought about before. But given the course of this conversation, I've, I venture to guess that you, you'll have a good answer for this. What is the most important thing that you want anyone who knows about American Restless or knows about you or doesn't, what's the most important thing you want people to know about you, Noah Likas, as a person, as a musician, as a writer, whatever it may be? You know, honestly... I had this friend in New York and we got into this heavy, heavy conversation about, <laughs> this is, right, here, here we go. I'll just go for it. So we got in this heavy, heavy conversation about religion and about like expectations of different religions. And if anyone listening to this has read my book or knows anything about like other stuff I've done, this probably is not surprising, but heavy, heavy conversation about like what's expected, what God expects of people in different religions and sort of different dogmas and theologies, right? Really heavy theological conversation. And my buddy ends up saying to me, because we end up talking about like Bob Dylan going Christian and we end up just we're like, we're just talking about all this kind of, kind of artsy music stuff. And he ends up saying, he's like, you know, the best I can tell, nowhere in any of the religions does it ask you to be perfect. It just asks you to get on the path. And that has stuck with me for going on 15 years now, right? And I think of this often. And I think if I had one thing I would want, you know, like a tombstone epitaph, right? Like yeah, one yeah. thing I'd, I'd, I'd want people to know is like, I'm just on the path and that's it. Like I'm just, I'm as earnest as I can possibly be with everybody. Like I'm just on the path. So that's beautiful. Thank you. I, yeah. You know what I mean? like, yeah, that's it. Like I, there's not much, I don't know. That's it for me. So I think there's a lot there though, man. That's a lot. That's a great perspective. You're full of great perspective and you've lived a life to this point that has exposed you to people and experiences that I, I'm almost certain has informed the depth of your perspective. So yeah, dude, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for, you know, taking some time to chat with me and share your story with me and everyone who's listening and one more time, listeners, if you hear this before May 12th, because in podcast world, these episodes will live on as, as long as the podcast lives on. So I don't like to spend too much time talking about, you know, date specific stuff. But if you do hear this episode before May 12th, make your way to Shank Hall. Three great bands, two of them, you know, putting out new albums. And one of them is, that's got some, uh, well, two of them have some national significance with Cadillac Head being played on ESPN because of Gerald. And then uh, the silent comedy, you know, having some songs or a video game and, and, and a TV show or something like that. So make your way to Shankar on the 12th of May. No, this has just been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, awesome. I appreciate you. I'll definitely be seeing you on May 12th. Yeah, man. Yeah, sounds good. And thanks for your time. And if anybody wants to, feel free to hit me up on the socials. I'm not hard to find. So Yeah, go ahead and, uh, and, and list those off for us. Uh, American Restless is at American Restless everywhere. That 
you would put that in. <laughs> and then for my personal stuff, it's just at Noah C. Lucas. So that's on, uh, I think, Instagram and Twitter. I'm not real active on on that one, but uh, it's all out there. And then uh, websites are AmericanWrestlers.com and NoahCLucas.com. So you can hit me up and chat. Right on, man. Well, appreciate you and appreciate your time. I look forward to uh, to your show in Milwaukee. Awesome, man. Cool. Thank you so much, man. Thank really, you. Uh, really appreciate it. Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musicians Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musicians Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.